Welcome to the Church Times podcast. John Pritchard is a former Bishop of Oxford and a popular writer. His books include The Life and Work of a Priest, Why Go to Church, and God Lost and Found. His latest book, published by SPCK, is called Five Events That Made Christianity. In it, he takes readers on a pilgrimage of the Holy Land as he unpacks the five great events that made Christianity. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. For each event, he explores what happened, what does it mean, and what does it mean for us now? The book is available to buy from the Church Times bookshop, and we'll be publishing an extract from the book on the Incarnation in our Christmas double issue, out next Friday. There's still time to buy a Christmas gift subscription to the Church Times. It's just £85, a 30% saving on the paper's cover price. It also includes a Christmas card announcing the gift, a bar of fair trade chocolate, and one of three great books. The offer is available until the end of the year, but if you order today, Friday, We'll endeavour to send the book in time for Christmas. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash Christmas. First of all, why did you decide to write this book? Why now? I decided for a number of reasons, actually. Um, The first, I suppose, is that I do a lot of um, retreats and pilgrimages in Israel-Palestine. And I was being asked by uh, a few people to just write up the kind of things that I was experiencing. Um, but I didn't want just it to be a, a, a travelogue or um, a, a pilgrimage book, but one about the, the substance of it as well. So that was one reason. Um, another was uh, I, the last book, um, apart from one on intercessions that I wrote, was um, called Something More. And one of the reviews it got said that there wasn't a theology in it. Now, the book was actually all about not starting with theology. It was saying that most people can't. Uh, most young people today don't really get any of our religious language. So can we start with ordinary human experiences and say, is there something more in that that leads us somewhere uh, towards God? Um, so there deliberately wasn't any theology, but I was rather taken aback by this uh, review that said uh, there's not enough theology. So that's made me think, OK, let's write something a bit more theological. But I can only write in a way that makes complex things more accessible. So I'm, I try to make everything accessible. So that was the second reason. Um, And the third reason was really just a doubt about whether we in the church do understand uh, very deeply these um, key doctrines. You know, we we prefer to keep with churchy things rather than theological things, even um, though, you know, it's the stuff that should be shaping our lives. So for a number of reasons, I thought I'd I'd like to have a crack at this, and I hope it's come together. Mm. I mean, would you say it's aimed, therefore, at people who've been... um committed Christians for a while or perhaps people who've... who've I guess I expect that the people who might be interested in it are going to be those who are already, already have a faith and would like to just uh, scrape a bit deeper into it. Um, But of course I always hope that uh, these books will fall into the hands of interested, intelligent people uh, who are open-minded enough to want to say, well, what do these Christians believe? I always hope that'll happen. Uh, But realistically, I think, you know, the way Christian publishing goes is that um, most of it will come to to Christians. And I hope then they might be prepared to lend the book out or preferably buy another copy um, (laughs) and uh, and give it to other friends who might be inquiring or interested in what these Christians do believe. Mm. I mean, you write that many Christians are faced with so many hard questions about the central tenets of the faith. They become adept at evading them and focusing more on the sort of everyday realities of church life when why why do you think that is is that just there's been a lack of teaching or, or lack well, of interest or is it part if, of a wider cultural phenomenon? i think if you think about it that you know, years ago any intelligent uh person would have read something about christian faith and theology and so on so even 
you know, 1960s when um, uh, the Honest to God uh, debate was on, uh, John Robinson's famous book, lots of people would read it who weren't necessarily Christians, but they, it was just part of what an intelligent um, person would, would read as part of their um, spread of reading. So we've lost that, I think. You know, there's much more divide now between those who uh, claim a faith and those who um, overtly don't. Um, and uh, therefore, we're, we're, you know, if we're thinking, thinking about our, our Christian folk, how are they getting their input as well? Um, if most people are not re particularly reading the books um, that are out there, and there are so many good ones, um, they may only be getting their input uh, as Christians from a 10-minute you know, Sunday sermon. And that's great, you know, and they're in the worshipping community and they'll hopefully be growing in faith and life. But, but actually un in understanding, um, it may be a bit thin. Not everyone is in a home group. Um, so I was thinking we really ought to make our theology accessible, um, uh, interesting, um, even attractive, you know, mm -hmm. um, that it, it, it should be arresting, and uh, I hope some of it is. The things that cover doctrine can be quite daunting to people, I and mean, this is very much aimed at being accessible, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's written in quite an um, accessible, at times breezy style, I'd say, or, or mm -hmm. certainly it reads very, mm -hmm. you know, you, it moves along very Thank well. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm glad it comes along like that. I, I like the word breezy, yes. Because um, <laughs> I think it, I, I do intend to use, well, I, I do just use a lot of illustrations of images and yeah. um, hopefully semi-memorable phrases, you know, to try to say, uh, this really is about life and it's and it's good and it's interesting and uh, uh, how about it? So um, I try to make uh, theology, you know, to make complex things simple. Hmm. Can you say a bit about the structure? You have um, what happened for each each of the you know it's birth of christ i suppose death resurrection ascension pentecost and for each of those you have what happened what does it mean and what does it mean for us now mm. and, that, and that's a you know, deliberate ploy to, to to tackle three things really the first you know what happened well we are interested in you know what happened and sometimes that's a bit hazy um but uh in fact very often it's quite hazy but um let's look at what happened <clears throat> and ask some of the, the questions about it so I've based quite a, that on quite a lot of experience of um, pilgrimage and retreats and so on, which I've, I've taken in, uh, in Israel-Palestine. Um, then the second section uh, of each of these is uh, asking, okay, what, is, what does that mean? And so that's, that's about the accessible theology. Um, and the third section each time is, uh, so what does it mean for us now? So that's about discipleship. So I hope uh, in terms of, you know, what do we take from the biblical story uh, and then how do we understand that in terms of approachable doctrine? And then how do we use that richness in discipleship? I hope it's it's quite a comprehensive um, little book in a sense. Mm. So it's therefore more than an intellectual exercise. It's also about um, praxis. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really am not trying to write a, a theological textbook at all. I'm trying to help the person in the pew, in the home group, in the... Uh, the interested person, the young person going to a confirmation group, you know, uh, school chaplains, you know, whoever. I'm just trying to help anyone who um, wants to go a little bit further into understanding this rather than just um, saying the creed, you know, what actually is that about? Mm. Um, so it's not a, a meant to be an academic book in any sense. I wouldn't pretend that. Um, it is about useful theology and practice. Sure. Um, should we just talk about a little about each section and what sort of some of the things that stood out? First, I guess, is the birth of Christ, which coming up to Christmas we're thinking about now. Um, I was interested in the what happens section. You don't shy away from some of the 
difficulties perhaps or challenges with the um, birth narratives even even the virgin birth mm. um, sure I, 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 I precisely that I didn't want to run away from them um, and uh, nor did I want to you know demolish them in any way I just wanted to look at them straight um, so you know did Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth or in Bethlehem well actually we've got different accounts and they come up you know it looks different um, when did this take place um, and setting that in a historical perspective is, is sometimes quite tricky. Well, it is quite tricky. Um, or, you know, where's the stable? Well, actually, it's a cave, you know, so let's look at that issue. Um, what do we make of the wise men? Uh, you know, it's another issue. But then, yes, the virgin birth, I wanted to look at that because it's uh, it's obviously um, part of our doctrine. But um, what does it, what is the virgin birth really about um, is the question I wanted to ask. So I hope I've approached those without being scandalous but being uh, honest, and uh, it, it's about generous orthodoxy in my case. That's always my aim. Right. I mean, you talked about being genuinely puzzled by the virgin birth. Absolutely. And, and that it shouldn't be a, a litmus test for mm. kind of orthodoxy. Yeah, that's that's precisely it. I, I'd want to say, you know, what actually were those gospel writers wanting to say? They were wanting to say this this child is is God's child in a sense, is divine. Um, they therefore put it in in the in the way that would make sense, which is a virgin birth. John and Mark don't tackle it uh, in that way, and uh, so you know what's our twenty first century uh, question? I think I, I just want to ask: Is a virgin birth necessary to ensure that Jesus was divine? Absolutely clear that Jesus was divine, you know, but is it necessary to have a virgin birth to do that? Well, I'm not trying to say yes or no. I'm just trying to say that's the question. I think right, but when Christians get too hung up on it as a precisely, yeah. yeah. And just in terms of what what does it mean? I mean, the birth of Christ obviously is something I guess people can get quite sentimental about the story, but perhaps mm. don't think too much about the theological significance. I suppose it's the the incarnation, and, and it's so rich, you know, that we now see what God is like. Um, we now have the um, the human face of God, the autobiography of God, the self portrait of God. You know, we've we've got that so absolutely brilliant, um, but of course. There's a whole spectrum of understandings of what that mean from the, means from the kind of top-down uh, approach. Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Um, so we then think of for the eternal word, you know, um, God from God, light from light, um, true God from true God, etc. That's the top-down approach. The other end of the spectrum, there'll be those who think of Jesus as the man who is totally open and responsive to God at every moment of his being. Um, and somewhere in between those, all of us place ourselves, you know, between the top down, um, second person of the Trinity and the, and the bottom up, um, uh, a person utterly um, given over to God. And so I want to look at things like that as well. And, uh, and also whether people want to approach the, the Trinity, you know, the divine through the, the window of Jesus or want to leap straight into um, the mystery of God uh, or come in through the, uh, the Spirit. So I want to look at that, you know, because we, we do that differently according to our personality and our theology and our background and all sorts of things. So um, there's, there's stuff on that too. You write about this all-vulnerable God. The incarnation shows God isn't just almighty, mm. Mm. distant on a throne. I think that's really important. Um, the, the almighty has got us into a lot of trouble, you know. Okay, if God is almighty, then why did that young man, uh, you know, just drop dead after uh, he'd been out for a run? Uh, if God could have stopped that and chose for some, I don't know, odd reason somewhere in, in the cosmos um, to, to let him die, you know, why is that? So I think we have to start, we have to, have to balance almighty with 
uh, with all vulnerable because God is both ultimate and intimate. Uh, he's both, you know, the one who contains all other, all other being, all other things that exist, but is not a thing in within that. Um, so there's the, you know, there's the the all-encompassing ultimate God, but there's also the intimate, uh, the God who is very close, uh, closer than my breathing, uh, living uh, in my life. You know, so it's. I want to explore all those issues as well. But the incarnation really gives us a wonderful way into that. Not only do we know what God is like, we also know what human being can be like. You know, what we can be like. Um, we have a so much higher destiny than we often think, and I love to to. Uh, to explore that idea of the, the humanity, Jesus, the, the one who's the kind of um, uh, the end product of humanity. Um, and that is the goal for all of us, in a sense. Mm. We're not going to get there. We're not going to be Jesus, but we're going, we can be Christ-like. And, of course, it also means, the incarnation means that um, matter matters, mm. uh, that you know the stuff of this world matters. We're not talking about an ethereal, fluffy... Um, faith that we disappear into uh, when we find that it gets hard. You know, this is a this is a real earthy God, a down to earth God. So there's lots of stuff we can get out of that. Mm. I was thinking about churches um, having lots of more people who don't usually come to church coming through their doors um, in the run up to Christmas and at Christmas mm. itself, mm. Um, and they have this message to proclaim, which to a lot of the outside world is a sort of part of their national heritage. It's something quite sentimental. Mm. Do you think that message about this, you know, matter matters that that could be something that speaks to people? completely outside the Christian faith. I hope so. Uh, I, I very much want to um, emphasise, uh, the first of all, the, the goodness and the potential of, of human life um, and our creation, then distorted and messed up and so on. Um, but, but a God who has who's owned our creation so fully um, is a God who we, gosh, we need. But I'm, you know, your mention of a kind of sentimental thing the danger is i think so often that um that people want to put the jesus in the in the in the manger uh, back into the decorations box until next christmas and they just bring him out again so we don't let him grow up um and but jesus grew up and so must we in our faith we can't stay at that sentimental level so there's a challenge there uh, to let jesus grow up and grow up ourselves and do you agree with those who say that sometimes, particularly in the creeds, I guess we jump too quickly from the incarnation to mm-hmm. the cross? And I know it's Sam Wells who, who I think you mentioned in the book what he says about the significance mm-hmm. of, I mean, not even before Jesus' ministry, his 30-odd years mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. um, learning, being a carpenter. Do we attach enough theological significance to that? No, I don't think we do. And uh, Sam draws that out very well about the, the God who is with us, who is with us for 30 years before he did anything for us. Um, and that 30 years of, of owning our life, uh, you know, getting to know what it was like to be a member of a family, to how to earn a living, how to be part of a, a you know a citizen in a, a small community, how to rejoice with those uh, who, re- who were having good times in the f- in the village and those who weren't um, lamenting with them, you know, just going through ordinary stuff. Um, and then came the ministry. But it's, it's also... Uh, uh, really important that we um, we grasp that this God who did things um, with us um, is always with us, uh, and and I, I think it's exp- I think I explore that as well about what does it mean to know Christ? Because um, again, I think there's a spectrum. There's from one end you you can be saying, um, you know, I uh, this this Jesus is um, an extraordinary 
figure who I have a personal relationship with. He's a friend. He's I can talk to him at all times. Absolutely. Further down the spectrum, you say, well, yeah, not a friend, certainly, but also just a fascinating figure. You know, when we have to grapple with, when we have to listen to, when we have to um, ask that question, what would Jesus do? You know, so it's the kind of the, the Christ of, of history. Um, so you've got the friend at one level, the Christ of history in the middle, and you've got a kind of um, a much more eth- ethereal kind of a, a Christfulness of life, um, the sense of a of a of a Christ spirit uh, who is with us at the other end of the spectrum. So again, people can have all kinds of different um, understandings of the mm. of, of the witness of Jesus, um, the Jesus who is with us still. Right. There's no one size fits all in that nope. sense. Yeah. And should we move on to the next part, the um, killing of Jesus and what happened? I suppose in, I mean, the gospel narratives perhaps here are a bit more straightforward than the birth narratives in terms of what we know or the historical sources. They are, um, absolutely, and, uh, and gosh, they're so powerful. Um, but I also write in the, in the first section about what happened, you know, about the, what, a, <laughs> what a confusing experience it can be when you actually go to the Church of the, um, of the Nativity, of the, um, uh, the Holy Sepulchre, and uh, and how difficult the first time pilgrim finds it to to find Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection in that. So there's there's quite a bit there about um, about coping with that. Um, but yes, the uh, the facts I think are um, are more easily um, displayed. And the the key thing for me there was the second section really. What does it mean? Mm. Um, because although I'm very keen to say that um, this is like a, it's it's like um, extraordinary beam of light coming onto a diamond and then being refracted in all kinds of different colours. Um, it's all, none of these are explanations of the cross. They're just ways of seeing the richness of the cross because it's not a um, a problem to solve the cross. It's a it's a mystery to enter. Um, and to experience all those all those different ways. So I write about some of those ways. They're not meant to be theories of the atonement. They're just meant to be the, some of the ways that the Bible um, explains the cross. And I just wanted to explain those. So essentially, but they're all about love. So it's you know it's about love as substitute. And there's strengths and strong weaknesses in that as well. Um, uh, love as uh, example, um, very powerful image, um, and and love as victor. Um, which is a you know a strong theme I think um, though one maybe some find it hard to understand you know principalities and powers and also love as participation the cross as a as a place of, of participation of us in uh, in in our witness with others so there's a whole lot of uh, stuff there that uh, I hope is helpful in trying to unpack um, the the glory of this um, wretched but magnificent event I mean some there have been you know fierce debates in the church even quite recently about the atonement and i mean do you think it seems for some in some traditions the their fear of the atonement almost becomes the gospel and something that they will yes um, i think that's right split for or or anything you know yeah yeah. Uh, and i think that's that's again very very sad because i think as i'm saying that the the cross is too rich to Mm. be reduced to one simple diagram or approach you know it is um there is there is there are elements of truth in all these different images, but Paul is using just um, contemporary social images that are all lying around, 
um, and he's saying, how can this help us to understand this uh, this thing? And he uses lots of different images, not just just one. So I'm I'm appealing for us to do the same. And perhaps what it means for us now, um, you talk about, I think, I think the role that Christians in the church can have in challenging evil. Indeed, and, uh, and, and this is our, you know, it's a vocation, it's an actually compelling vocation to confront evil. Um, we can't just uh, sit silently. Jesus confronted evil, um, and uh, yes, he absorbed it, uh, and so took away its power, um, but he wasn't just going to roll over and say, oh, well, that doesn't really matter, um, you know, I've got other fish to fry. Um, this was he, what he took on, and Christians therefore need to take on evil wherever we see it. So it has social and political implications, some of which I try to uh, draw out here as well. Um, the, the evil around us, gosh, um, you know, where do you start? Um, but we also have this gospel, it comes through absolutely clearly, of reconciliation. You know, we, So it isn't, although we, we confront evil, we don't, in a sense, take sides... Um, where there's legitimate uh, disagreement, we try to bring people together, to hold people together. Um, I, I try to uh, uh, illustrate that in a number of ways, and so some moving examples, I think, there. I um, mm. hope that helps. But also, mm. I wanted to say there about, I think the death of Jesus shows us how, a bit how to die to ourselves, um, how to die, in a sense, into Jesus. Um, so that our our life is is just totally wrapped up in his, um, and uh, the, the film of gods and men I I use as an example there, which I think is very powerful. By the book. <laughs> um, okay, resurrection. Moving on, you talk here about how the gospels move into quite uncharted territory, no longer referencing the Old Testament; they're just in entirely mm. new language. Mm. Um, and the inconsistencies in some of the gospel accounts, which I guess the Professor Dawkins of this world would use as a way to mm. refute this ever happening. But you say this is a strength. I think it's a strength because, you know, if I, I go to a football match, it depends very much, you know, where you've been sitting, mm. um, uh, which side you support, uh, whether you're asleep when the goal was scored or not, what you think of particular players, you know, all kinds of things will influence how you uh, describe that. So uh, I think if everyone, if all the, the uh, accounts agreed, then you'd say that's a fix. Um, but they don't agree, it isn't a fix. Um, it's the witness, uh, it's different witnesses of an extraordinary event, which Rowan Williams talks about as uh, kind of parallel to the Big Bang. Second you know, Big Bang. Absolutely. So, you know, this is huge. This is the um, the engines of creation being put into reverse. Um, you know, what's going on? This is massive. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the different accounts are... Necessary, mm. but you mean you say I think that they they all agree on the empty tomb, for instance. Mm, yeah. It's just other things about the, how many people were there, or sure. It's about the agreement on the core thing: the tomb was empty. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was encountered in all kinds of different ways and times. Um, th these disciples were utterly changed um, from these scared group um, of, uh, of of young men who were hiding from in case they had the same fate, um, and they they moved into world changers. Um, the existence of, uh, of the church today, the uh, experience people have of the living Jesus. You know, all these are irrefutable, I think, but historically, yeah, I do think the empty tomb and the appearances are without doubt. And in this old question, which has been debated for centuries about the, uh, is it a physical body, Jesus' Jesus risen body, or is it a spiritual body? Mm. But you say both. 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm happy with the term spiritual body because that seems to me to combine spiritual and physical. You know, body is usually to us physical, so I think that's a spiritual, physical. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not wanting to kind of pursue that to the, to, uh, you know, to pin it down, QED, I understand it. Of course I don't, uh, nor did Paul, but he said that spiritual body was the best kind of language he could find to use. Um, so I'm happy to leave it. Uh, with Paul as it were but I do think you know uh, as we go on with quantum physics and with the uncertainty principle and the fact that in a sense 90% of anything we uh, we touch you know like a table um, actually does has is empty space <laughs> you know, all these things uh, indicate a much more opaque understanding of reality um, so I wouldn't want to say that uh, you know, this could not happen um, where we now have much more, I think, um, scientific framework um, to be able to say something extraordinary happened. We're not going to understand it, um, but let's just uh, let God's mystery um, be God's mystery. Mm. I was struck by what you uh, by what you write about um, the resurrection, showing that the cross is a victory, not a defeat. It's mm. not you. You quote Michael Ramsey saying the crucifixion is not a defeat, needing the resurrection to reverse it. Mm. But a victory which the resurrection quickly follows and seals. So I mean, those mm. two are very connected, mm. aren't they? Absolutely, it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? And uh, we, of course, now see it as as one thing, as it were, cross resurrection. You know, it happened within three days or two days, or have you you time it? At the time, though, I think they were two colossally different events. And there's a great chasm between in the experience of the disciples between the death of their friend and the extraordinary happenings of Easter morning um, so there is actually a deep chasm and we in a sense in the church live in that Easter Saturday um, between you know cross and resurrection anyway that's another point um, but uh, nevertheless I do think um, because we see the two as the same uh, two sides of the same coin we've forgotten perhaps just how deeply extraordinary that event of resurrection was. And you're still about this introduction of new time or mm. to new time and that we're living in this sort of in new time, but in the old time. Correct. Yeah, um, it, it's my illustration is you know when I'm in, uh, in New Zealand uh, and I, I phone the family, um, it's not popular if I phone according to my time. Um, you know, I, we're, we're we're in different time zones, um, and Jesus and the resurrection uh, is in new time, but so are we now in Christ, and we're trying to live new time in old time, uh, to bear witness to new time. Uh, as we're living in in old time, and to work on new time projects while we're here, mm. um, so I just find that a helpful uh, mm. image mm. for myself, um, and uh, it probably borrows from something of Tom Wright's. Indeed, surprised by hope and, and yeah. looks like that, and also in some of these new time projects may not be um, so obviously churchy. I mean, you mm. talk about many. Can you give some examples mm. of of things that people could be doing which are bringing in that the kingdom? Absolutely, because um, God isn't thank goodness limited by the church and you know, God's concern is the kingdom uh, and and God will use whoever whatever um, uh, instruments of uh, of new time uh, are around and uh, and that will be very many good people who who don't have a faith or claim even to be atheists you know but I think if they are if they are doing the things of grace compassion justice peace uh, love you know if, if they are doing those they are actually contributing uh, to the kingdom um, and uh, so God will use all his available resources.
Okay, should we move on to the Ascension? Um, I mean, this is where I've had my five-year-old son say before what happened to Jesus after he rose from the dead. And, and he, he seems to find it fine to say he went up to heaven. Mm. Um, but I know as I got older, I found that at times embarrassing to say because it does sound quite out mm. of this world. And, and perhaps we, I don't know, take it too literally. Um, how do we approach the Ascension? Yeah, we don't want to um, say something that has to be unlearnt by... Uh, um, a child later on, do we? It, it's a very difficult one. Now, I, I think we just, I, w- I would want to say this is just um, the end of Jesus's uh, life with us. We don't know how that ended. Uh, we have a picture of um, an ascending Christ, but neither the Archbishop of Canterbury nor the Regius Professor of Divinity at, at Oxford think that means that Jesus shot up through the stratosphere um, and emerged in some unknown uh, cosmic place you know it isn't that kind of event but it 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 led the uh, disciples to uh, complete conviction that they had seen Jesus physically for the last time um, so I, I'm happy to let that be and to say uh, that in a sense what happens in the ascension is God returns uh, Jesus returns to his place and and we return to our place you know uh, Jesus's place is with the father um, and, and so we have the images of, that we're, we're used to in uh, creeds and so on, on the right hand of the Father, etc. But Jesus' place is in God. Uh, our place is on earth um, to get on with the New Kingdom projects. So that, um, that verse, um, uh, God is in heaven, we are on earth, therefore let your words be few. You know, I'm rather fond of that. Um, it was a clarification because for, the, for 40 days, um, uh, disciples hadn't quite known what was happening you know that Jesus was here and then he wasn't and he was that place and then he was another place and they didn't know what they were supposed to do in all of that from this time they return to the the temple praising God they know what they've got to do and they get on with it and they turn the world upside down Um, and it's just an extraordinary story so I think it's I'm not I wouldn't want to pursue this one to the death I'm simply saying um, uh, they knew that uh, the time with Jesus physically on earth was over and you title this chapter the lever who remained that's right indeed because um, the, the this is the one who who left in that sense but who said he would be returning um and he said to to mary in the garden you know you, you've got to let me go because i've got to be available to all people at all times and places whereas if i stay with you i can only be available to you in this time and mm-hmm. place so uh, he had to be a lever so that he could remain mm-hmm. uh, and he has remained uh, and we have millions of Christians claim to know the presence of Jesus in some way and I gave that spectrum earlier on Um, but you know the the, the reality of Jesus is still with us and then of course we get on to the the spirit. Then moving on to sending of the spirit Pentecost I mean you've mentioned already this was I guess so Jesus could be present everywhere not be bound by geographical location Mm. is one of the Mm. reasons. Absolutely Um, so that the spirit uh, could empower us uh, because the disciples were delighted to find Jesus around the place, but um, they weren't actually doing very much. They needed the clarity of knowing it's their job, and then they needed the power and authority to get on with it. Um, because it, I think we sometimes don't realise, again, just how it's the same Jerusalem that was so scary beforehand, um, before the, the, the crucifixion. It's that same Jerusalem they're in. So something pretty... You know, jet fueled needed was needed to get them out there on the road with this um, 
confidence and joy and uh, you know and it's the same with us you know we need the spirit of christ the spirit of jesus uh, to empower us to get out and do these mm. things which we do amazingly uh, all over the world you know when the media has, has moved on somewhere else you know christians are still in, in there doing stuff because they're empowered by the spirit um, so um, yeah we need the spirit uh, to live and to do the the new life the, the new time stuff uh, the kingdom building you also talk about the spirit training us in christ-likeness um you talk about strictly come dancing Yes, it's just an image that appealed to me. I, I, I love the way that uh, those professionals can take um, the amateurs and, and mould extraordinary things out of their initial incompetence. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, where Strictly gets to is just, just amazing. I think that's what the spirit can do with us. You know, the spirit is the professional. We are the, uh, the abject learners to begin with. Um, but the spirit can... can can train us in um, in godliness and in and in the fruits of the of the spirit, so that we can actually live this Christian life. So it's a, I think, a nice image of what the spirit's doing all the time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first ten issues for just ten pounds. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.